Hi everyone, you might have noticed recently that the videos on the Young to Live By channel have slowed down in terms of their release, and that's because our team are very very busy at the moment, have been for around the last two months, especially Steve, who's been working very very hard on the Personal Myth Guide, which has since expanded from its original conception to be absolutely enormous. If you would have already pre-ordered that, then I would have given you a notification via email a couple times or on the Discord server as to the status of that, and it'll be in your guys' hands very very soon. But in the meantime, before the guide is released, I thought I would get started on some of the Ask Adept Psychologist questions that you guys have posted in the Discord server if you are signed up at the $10 tier or higher on Patreon. And the first question of the day comes from Simas or Simas, and he or she asks, There are various practices like intermittent fasting, cold showers and ice baths, and vigorous exercise. There's plenty of scientific evidence that engaging in such things is good for the body. There is common knowledge dating back thousands of years that such things are good for you. When you do these activities, at first there's discomfort, but after some time you get used to it, and even start to enjoy it in a way. But what about the unconscious? You're kind of going against your survival instincts, putting your body in starvation, exposing to low temperatures, and invoking the fight or flight response. Is this alright with the unconscious? Well, CMAS or CIMAS, that's a very, very, very good question. And I think the way to reframe it for yourself just slightly in your mind is to take the idea that the unconscious is psychobiological. It's not simply the back of the mind. And of course, I wouldn't be reading into your question that that was your presumption, but I do think that this way of viewing it will help. Because one of the core parts to the IPSA model, which I believe puts us uh, a little bit away from, say, the more orthodox Jungian, or at least the, the later writings of Carl Jung, is we believe that mind and body are two sides of the same coin. So a way of thinking about it for yourself is that everything that is unconscious as a process, in other words, we're not consciously in control of it. So if you think about the ego as being psychosomatic first and foremost, and then secondly, psychological, then everything within the body that we're unconscious of will be run by the unconscious. So an example of that is the beating of your heart. The beating of your heart works via electrical impulses that are coordinated by nerves. If you think about nerves or a neuron as a, as a cell, it's the same broad category of cell type as you find in the brain. And the brain, of course, being neuroscience, is where the cause or the origins of consciousness and things that we would broadly call the mind take place. So things like breathing, your gut moving, your heart beating, these are all unconscious processes. So therefore we can look at things and say, okay, well, whatever's good for the body must therefore be good for the mind, as a general rule. And of course we're open to exceptions within that, but broadly that is a very, very, very reasonable hypothesis to take forward. So to go through the specific things that you talked about, I mean, first of all, intermittent fasting. There is indeed strong evidence that there's an evolutionary basis or a phylogenetic basis for why intermittent fasting would be good for you. Of course, by saying good for you, I mean in this particular instance, promotes longevity, promotes uh, adaptation within your own body and the things that you take into your own body. There's less pain, less suffering, you've you got a sharper mind, things like that, which people anecdotally, and indeed now with scientific papers over the last decade or so, have now come to realise is probably true. Uh, the reason for that from a biochemical means is you go through um, anabolic processes and catabolic processes. So for example, when you, when you eat food, uh, you go through a process or your, your cells in your body go through a process called glycolysis. And then there's later post-processing then once you produce the, the molecules, the biomolecules out of glycolysis. Glycolysis is a way of taking food or glucose in this particular case 
and turning it into energy broadly for us to use. So food to energy, that's great. But there is also many other processes in the body. I think most prominently, if you want to use the archetypal example, would be gluconeogenesis, which is taking non-carbohydrates, so most prominently it would be fats within somebody, and turning them into sugars like glucose for you to then use to put through glycolysis. So you can see there is a naturally built into us that taking in food from the environment directly so that we can use it, but then on the flip side of that, there is you know, our fat stores within us, which is also works in terms of our um, a, a supply of glycogen in the muscles and in the liver to turn into food and then into energy within us. So there's a way, there's two ways of getting energy for us to move. So the fact that that's built into us means that we have indeed evolved to cope with lack of immediate food-based resources. So there is already sound evidence that, first of all, it's okay, it's fine, just within our own bodies and studying that. But there is scientific data, you're absolutely right, to show that these kind of things are good for you. On cold showers and ice baths, you know, cold exposure, there is a, there's a big culture online, there are specific gurus that I have in mind, I'm sure you guys are aware, that uh, put these things forward as something that we should do, that it's like a habit. It's something that we can top down, bolt into our lives, and our lives will become better, either through our mind becoming sharper, or our body becoming more resistant to diseases and things like that. The, the evidence for cold showers and ice baths and how useful they are is mostly anecdotal. That's not to take anything away. There are some scientific studies showing, in particular, the effect on the immune system seems to be relatively solid. So I think on that, you know, like with all of this stuff, it becomes a personal choice. I mean, personally for myself, I don't see a reason to jump into a cold shower early in the morning. You know, like my, my, my take with it being a clinician in this case would be, well, human beings are stressed enough anyway. And uh, so why, why stress yourself further, especially when you're first getting used to it, when the ROI or return on investment for doing such habits is overwhelmingly tiny compared to other things that you could do. For example, relate better or work on your personal myth. The transformations people report, especially in the Young to Live by Discord server, to be, to, to, to be fair to the guys in there, is enormous when people start working on that. But the transformation when someone starts jumping in an ice bath is uh, <laughs> nowhere near the same magnitude. But it's somebody's personal choice at the end of the day. And uh, when you're talking about exercise, I mean, of course, you know, low-level to mid-level exercise is clearly good for the body, clearly good for the mind, both being two sides of the same coin. Of course, there's, when you start entering into more heavy areas of exercise from a clinical perspective, that's when you, know, you need to be more bespoke as to whether or not that's, that's sensible for a human being. And you know, like Take running, for example. There is evidence to suggest that running on concrete, which we did not evolve for, is probably going to be bad for our joints later on in life. So with all of those things, it's definitely a personal choice. But I like to look at all of, these, all of this stuff when it comes to habits or lifestyle choice and ground it in biology evolution, evolutionary psychology, phylogenetics, and to look at, go right back to basics as to what human beings have evolved to do. We've really evolved to do two things, because we've got, say, a built-in lifespan to us. And over the course of that lifespan, from timed release from the genome, we release our instincts. And so one of the things that has to happen for us to be healthy, well-adapted human beings living within that broad bandwidth, quote-unquote, canonical mode of being throughout life, is to release our instincts. And those instincts we've discussed a lot on the YouTube channel. In particular, you have to bear in mind would be the four-stage lifespan development model with a fifth stage later on in life. You know, mother, father, friends, 
and then being confirmed by a partner. And of course, afterwards, in the second half of life, which is what Jung's writings were all about, is self-confirmation in that sort of broadest sense. And the other thing that we're evolved to do is, and this is for a phylogenetic reason, is psychosocial adaptation. If you can imagine that you know, we, we, we release our instincts with our lifespan development and we mate and we relate with other people, then we produce from that mating stage anyway, and as well from relating, we produce more copies of the genome, we produce children. But through broader psychosocial adaptation, we protect the collective genome in that case. That's, that's mostly from a genetic level what it's there for. Proper relating has evolved to be so essential that to protect our offspring and our genome long into the future. So if you consider that, and then you consider the, the cause of human suffering in a clinical sense, then I would take a look at something like cold showers and not even give it a second thought. It would be my own personal choice. It's like maybe when you've, from my personal opinion, maybe when you've uh, tweaked so many other things, then maybe cold showers can come on and give you a decent return on investment. And you know, with something like in intermittent fasting, it's like if there's not a dietary-based problem that you have, it seems to be people can live a long time simply by eating standard three meals a day, and the unconscious is very happy with that. The unconscious will adapt, and I mean that psychobiologically, it will adapt to conditions where food is readily available, and it will adapt to conditions where food or certain macros within the food are not readily available. For example, someone when you go on to a ketogenic diet, the body enters into a state of ketosis. You become fat adapted, as they say. Well, the unconscious is prepared for that, because there could have been periods where you didn't really get, well, first of all, much sugar, or second of all, much food in general. So being able to use fatty acids and ketone bodies to get our energy from is something that we can adapt to. And indeed, exercise is something that we probably should all do. You know, So if you ground it in that biology, I think it gives us a frame with which we can move forward in a sensible manner in line with what our psychobiology wants and needs. To me, it's a way of prioritizing things. You know, rather than go straight to cold showers, meditation, black coffee, reading 10 pages a day, the standard self-development stuff that you find online, or jumping into an ice bath and breathing incredibly heavily over and over and over again, which we would never clinically endorse. It is, it is clinically dangerous. There is voluminous amounts of evidence for that in the scientific literature. Then, you know, maybe turn things towards something more fundamental. Yourself, your story, you know, your basic health markers in a biological sense, but also your personal myth, the way that you relate. Are you in touch with your instincts? That's really, at core, non-negotiable to the genome. Okay, and the second question comes from Grail Squire, which is a fantastic name, by the way. And uh, he or she asks, uh, how can you use the experience of a DMT trip optimally for the purposes of self-development? I haven't had one, but I know a bit about them. But we were talking about this subject quite recently in one of our recent CADA 2 sessions, or the, 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 our second group of students for our IPSA training course, one of the students asked something along the same lines. There does seem to be these days a resurgence, or not even necessarily resurgence, it might just be the internet bringing like-minded people together, um, to use using drugs for self-development purposes. Now, the, the, the clinical position on this, and especially the IPSA clinical position on this, is that there is not, we, we do not encourage the use of this kind of thing clinically or for self-development reasons. The reason for that is because of the nature of the interactions between your unconscious and your conscious mind. You can consider the unconscious to be a part of you broadly in terms of your psychobiology, but it is unto itself. It is, uh, it, is, it is an other to you. And the way of framing this, if you guys have picked up the hypnotherapy manual, or if some of the students are watching, you guys will know this if you have practiced this in a, in a sort of a, a deeper way. 
would be if you're polite to your unconscious, you are far more likely to get a response back either in a positive or in a negative way in terms of what you might consider to be you know, progress moving forward, but you still get more of an engagement from the unconscious. It's like, well, that's very strange. Why might that be the case? And so therefore you can consider it as you should be polite and respectful to your psyche. Now, when you get something like dreams, dreams are a safe way of taking information that is, it originates in your unconscious and then it shoots forward high, you know, your unconscious shoots forward high bandwidth information towards the ego. And then the ego is able to receive it in its dream ego form in a safe way. And we have ways of making sure that that's safe. For example, your serotonergic system in the, in the brain, your nervous system changes so that you become paralyzed when you are asleep. This is, of course, where sleep paralysis comes from. But you are paralyzed when you're asleep so you don't act out your dreams. So what you're doing with drugs like DMT, of which the, the, the scientific research in the broadest sense and the deepest sense into drugs like this, including LSD, anything that you can think of, we don't really understand how it works, especially if these things are globally, uh, they act globally on the brain. Even things like alcohol and marijuana, we're still not entirely sure how they work. They seem to have a variable effect on different people. And I mean that in terms of the things that you phenomenologically experience rather than say, you know, alcohol is a broad CNS depressant, which it would be broadly classed pharmacologically. So with something like DMT, it's like you have no idea what you're doing. The visions that you see, the feelings that you feel, they are obviously originate from within you. And so we could say that they are natural in that sense. But you, what you're doing is you're taking your ego boundaries, which is what keeps you safe from the unconscious. You know, if you look at Carl Jung, the man, you look at the red book and the black books, for example, you know that the unconscious is not something to go open your arms towards and just embrace and give a hug and everything in there is wonderful and good or indeed to romanticize that anything in there that might appear to be more hostile to the ego is something to be overcome and confronted that's uh, that's by definition that would be neurotic to consider that a split a split within yourself and it would be a very 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 awful suggestion to give yourself but what you're doing is you're dissolving those ego boundaries and you're allowing unconscious contents to bombard the ego now, those unconscious contents, if we, if we broadly take a very classical Jungian approach or a later Carl Jung, or the Carl Jung later on in his career approach, we might consider unconscious contents to be wonderful, mystical, woo-woo things, the archetypes, the land of milk and honey and all other kinds of strange things that we suddenly lose a grounding in psychobiology when we talk about that kind of thing. But, but what, we, what we find, as we've discussed on the YouTube channel, is complexes primarily that will come onto the ego. And so, for example, you might have an interest in Christianity, for whatever reason, cognitively, and then you take a drug like this, and then suddenly Christ appears to you. It's like, oh, well, I knew Christ was real, and this is synchronous because the drug revealed it to me. I don't want to be cynical with this. This is, this is a common occurrence that people go through. It's like, well, did you really meet Christ, or did you meet a complex that was wearing the face of Christ, or a corporental complex that accrued Christ to the surface, in conjunction with a moral complex, perhaps involving your mother, or so just a random example, perhaps involving your mother that was there, the Christianity was used to contain you, perhaps there's a narcissistic streak within you, and so the appeal to Christianity is a way to, one, appeal to a bigger bully than yourself under certain circumstances, um, and two, to, con to constrain your relating function as it's been maldeveloped due to the you know, relationship, say, with one of your parents. Things are complicated and things are strange. And so to just take a substance that you don't understand and experience things and claim that they're mystical is dangerous. 
Well, that doesn't mean if you do it, you're going to be damaged. It doesn't mean if you do it, you're going to be screwed in any particular sense, whatever you want to use that word for. But it does mean that for self-development purposes, you're just being bombarded with unconscious contents. So the, the, if, the chances of you being able to interpret that probably, uh, in, in, in a, interpret that um, properly uh, is, is virtually zero. And again, I don't mean that in a cynical sense. If one cannot interpret their dreams, what makes one think that they can interpret a DMT trip? And indeed, what makes one think that it will deliver lasting personality change towards optimal psychosocial adaptation? So like with the first question, if we ground it in biology and what, the, what your psychobiology wants to do, which is not transcend off into enlightenment land, it is to psychosocially adapt in line with instincts being released. It goes right the way back to Sigmund Freud. And one of his texts, Civilization and Its Discontents, I think is a good layman's introduction to that whole model of, uh, of, of, of describing how human beings and other human beings exist within an evolutionary con con context. So as such, we do not endorse something like this and we do not see any, clear, any value in, uh, in this for personal development or clinical reasons. That is not to say that an individual cannot explore. That is somebody's personal choice. But as you asked us, we'll answer, we'll answer based on what we think. The Personal Myth Ultimate Handbook is now available for pre-order. For anyone who has a yearning deep in their very genome to become who they truly feel they should be, this guide is utterly indispensable. Pick up your copy today and make 2021 the year you truly begin to become yourself.